Well, first of all, I want to say uh, thank you to uh, Billy Wilson and to Chris Grant for coming and filling the pulpit for me. Um, as I was away these two weeks, down, first down in Florida to be at my grandmother's uh, memorial, which was a great blessing indeed uh, to honor her in 107 and a half years of, uh, of life. Um, and to be with my family there, it was good to have a reunion with some of my cousins and so forth that I haven't seen in, in many years. And attended a beautiful little Episcopal church. I went to church with uh, uh, my uncle, Roger. And what a beautiful little church. And I was so encouraged uh, by that church and the preaching of the gospel that was there and uh, the service. It was really a delight. And I was glad to have that. And then came home for a few days, got some work done. And then uh, we, we went up to Massachusetts to the Cape uh, for a week there. So we're back and raring and ready to go. <laughs> with trepidation for the coming school year, I assure you, but uh, it's good to be uh, back with you in the house of the Lord. Uh, so, but again, big thanks to Billy and to Chris. It's hard to find pulpit supply and we are not close to my home. And so when I ask people to do pulpit supply, it's a real commitment. Um, and, uh, and it was Billy's first time, so I caught him blindsided. So I don't know, we'll see if I can get him, get him back again. Um, but it's good to be back with you. Well, today, we move closer to our conclusion of our study on 1 Corinthians, and we are, if you will, at the great mountain peak here of, uh, of the book, and in many ways of the scriptures in this chapter that we're in, in 1 Corinthians 15. We've been mentioning that Paul in, in 1 Corinthians, is, it's such a beautiful book because it's a practical book in many ways. It's, it's, it's getting right down on the ground with us and helping us wrestle through what it is to be a Christian, as opposed to being a Corinthian. You know, we all live in Corinth. You know, our Corinth is, is America. Uh, it's New York, you know, New England. Um, but, but what does it mean to be a Christian living in New York, as opposed to being a New Yorker who happens to be a Christian, an American who happens to be a Christian? And how quickly our sensibilities, our, uh, our inclinations, our intuitions slide to the American side of the equation. Our instinct is to do the American thing. The instinct is to do the New York thing as opposed to doing the Christian thing. And sometimes those aren't at odds. They're just differences, but many times they are at odds. And sometimes in very subtle ways. And so Paul is challenging us here. You know, the Corinthians had ways of doing things. I and mean, these guys were Corinthians. Huh? How else do you do it? You know, and, and that's the challenge of living in the kingdom is learning to think Christianly, as Harry Blameyer said. What, is it, what, what would a Christian do in this scenario? And sometimes there's no obvious answer. Sometimes there's no direct answer. But oftentimes there are, and Paul has been leading us through these different instances where the Corinthians are struggling with their Corinthian way of doing things that is at odds with the Christian faith. Now here in 1 Corinthians 15, we come to a, a big distinction, right? Is there a resurrection or not? That's a pretty big difference. The Corinthian way of thinking is, no, there's not. The Greeks didn't believe in resurrection. They believed the body is corrupt and evil and, and gets in the ground and good. So be it. God forbid we ever see that thing again. You know, and the soul flies free. This is a prison house of the soul, the Greeks thought. And so the, 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 the body will fly free. Uh, the soul will fly free. And Paul is, is punching that right in the nose, saying, hey, what's going on here? I hear some of you are saying there's no resurrection from the dead. And he began this chapter by saying, but I met the risen Lord Jesus. I'm telling you the truth, 
Christ died according to the scriptures and he was raised according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to them and to them and to him and to those and to 500 over there. And last of all, to me. But I can tell you what I've seen in the risen Lord Jesus. And then he works them through all the logical implications that if you say there's no resurrection, let me just tell you what that means. It doesn't mean that what you're thinking is untrue, though I'm telling you it's untrue because I've met the risen Lord Jesus. But let me tell you the implications of your theology. And so he worked them through that. And then the last text that we looked at before I left and then Billy and Chris came, um, the last text we looked at was the text that Mark began reading today. Some of you are asking me, but in what way will they come back? Okay, so if I grant you, Paul, that we will be raised from the dead, please explain to me what that looks like. And Paul gave them the theology of that. And he said, hey, you meatheads, <laughs> you, know, you foolish people. Um, he says, don't you know, haven't you, don't you see within the created world that you bury something and it dies? You bury living things and they die and then they bring forth new things. You put a seed in the ground, it's alone, but you put a seed in the ground and it dies and then it's buried and then it brings forth new life. And the new life that it brings is abundant life. You put an acorn in the ground and an oak tree comes out a much more grand and wonderful things. And who's to say how that happens? But God gives each body according to his will. You put, a, you put a kernel of grain in the ground and a head of wheat comes out. And so it was. Adam went in the ground, but it's the risen Lord Jesus Christ who comes forth. Not, no longer a man of dust, but a man of the spirit and himself a life-giving spirit. He bears life. The, the acorn goes in the ground and it out comes an oak tree, and the oak tree is filled with acorns. You put the seed of wheat in the ground, and a head of grain comes out that's filled with grains of, of wheat. It's a life-giving thing. And Paul says, so shall it be with us. Who knows what we shall be? It's a, man, man's mind can't conceive of all that we shall be. But woven into creation itself is this truth of death, burial, and then resurrection unto greater life. The seed doesn't just pop back up out of the ground. You know, the old, you, you, you put the acorn down and then weeks later it just kind of, kind of pops its way back up and you get the acorn. Oh, well, the acorn's back. No, no, no. You put the acorn in the ground and you get an oak tree. It's grander. It's more beautiful. It's more wonderful. It's more majestic. And so shall it be for us. Now, we conclude this marvelous mountaintop uh, chapter with the peak of the mountain. I mean, it doesn't get better than, than the text we're looking at here today, I don't think. So I want us to reflect on this in a couple ways. I want us to look at the mystery, the fact, the explanation, and the charge. So those are going to be, we're going to kind of tackle this text in those four ways. The mystery, the fact, the explanation, and then the charge. So first, the mystery. Now I say this, brethren, uh, uh, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Now again, you need to think back about what he just said. He just said, you know, this corruption is going to put on incorruption. You know, it's going to be buried. What goes into the ground is dishonorable, but what comes out is glorious. What goes into the ground is weak, but what comes out of the ground is full of power. You know, so what you, these two things, again, you don't put the acorn in and get the acorn back. You put the acorn in, you get the oak tree. And so flesh and blood, if you will, will not inherit the kingdom, nor does corruption inherit 
in corruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. And here Paul is confessing, I don't have all the details. Just like you don't know how the heck an acorn becomes an oak tree. You know, but in God's providence, it does. In God's working of his ways. And so it is true for us. Paul says, this is a mystery. And a mystery is something that I'm telling you, but the fulfillment is one you're going to have to just wait to see unfold. I, I, I can't give you all the details. Paul uses this word mystery a lot in his writings. One chief way, maybe the primary way he uses the word mystery in his writings is about the mystery of the gospel going to the Gentiles. In Ephesians 3, he talks about this, that it was given to me to be a minister of this mystery of grace. That, that is to say, in the Old Testament, it was suggested that the Gentiles were going to kind of come into the kingdom, but how? Were they all going to become Jews? Like, that seems unlikely. I don't, how's this going to work? That the, that the, the Gentiles are going to be sort of fellow partners with us in the kingdom. Just couldn't imagine how that would be. And it was a great mystery. It was just left out there. No explanation. And then after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, it begins to be fulfilled. And Paul sees it being fulfilled in his own time. He sees Gentiles flooding into the kingdom and the mystery of the gospel going to the Gentiles. The fact that Gentiles, uncircumcised as they were, could be considered full heirs of Abraham's promises because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. All of a sudden, that which was kind of clouded in darkness, how did Gentiles make it into the kingdom? Now the death and resurrection of Jesus has come, and the lights have come on in the room, and that which was once a mystery is a mystery no longer. Oh, now I see how Gentiles can be considered fellow heirs because Jesus has died for their sins and been raised for them, and as such welcomed them into the kingdom as well as Jews. So for Paul, that's what a mystery is. A mystery is something, as he describes it, something I am confident of, but it's out there in the darkness. I can't see how we get from here to there. I just have to wait until the Lord turns the lights on. And for him, the lights came on after his Damascus Road experience about Gentiles coming in, and the mystery was revealed to him. It was no longer a mystery, which for centuries it was, millennia. It was. And so Paul here uses that word of mystery. The how and the what of the resurrection. What shall we be? Okay, yes, we're human. Yes, we have resurrected bodies, glorified bodies, but Paul's saying, I can't give you all the details on that. It's a mystery that I declare to you. But here's what he can say. We shall not all sleep. That is, there are going to be some who are living at the time when Jesus comes back. Right? We shall not all sleep, but here's what I do know we shall all be changed. The corruptible doesn't inherit incorruption. The corruptible has to corrupt. The corruptible has to die. <coughs> Again, Jesus in John chapter 12, if a seed remains as it is, it remains alone. But if it's put into the ground, if it dies and is buried, then it will bring forth life. This corruptible has to be done away with and be transformed. And whether that comes through death or whether it comes through the instantaneous changing for that generation that is still alive when Christ comes again, we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we 
shall all be changed. On that moment, and Paul says, it's out there in the darkness. I know for certain it's coming, but I don't know all the details. I don't know the when. I don't know the how. I don't know the what, what all that looks like. But here's what I do know, that when that trumpet sounds, on that determined day that the Lord has set right now, could be tomorrow, could be another millennia. I don't know. It's not for us to know that. But for Paul, it is an absolute certainty that this mysterious work will itself be accomplished and we will be changed. The dead will be raised incorruptible. Right? Incorruptible doesn't just mean it doesn't corrupt. It means it can't corrupt. Corruption is not, it's incorruptible. Able. It's not able to be corrupted. On that day when Christ comes, then all will be changed. So there's a mystery, no doubt. But for Paul, mystery does not mean uncertainty. Indeed, brothers and sisters, this is our hope that when Christ comes, we shall be changed and the cemeteries will be emptied and the dead in Christ will be raised. So first, the mystery. Secondly, the fact, right? For Paul, again, it's a mystery, but it's not an uncertainty. It's a fact. So when this corruptible has put on corruption, and the mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Okay, I don't know all the details, but here's what I do know. The day is coming when death will be swallowed up in victory. I meant to, I should have done it. You know, I know Mark loves it when I read poetry from the pulpit. Uh, so I would have done it just to get to him. Don't tell him I wouldn't. But but John Donne's poem, you know, Death Be Not Proud. And, and I love that poem because it's this defiant poem of, uh, to death. But in, the, in the, the way he ends that poem is so beautiful. He says, death, thou shalt die. Death, thou shalt die. But there is coming a day when death shall die. There is coming a day, and again, I've told you this before, and we looked at this earlier in our, our look at 1 Corinthians uh, 15. There is coming a day when death is taken and thrown into the lake of fire. <laughs> Whatever that means. right? But the, the beautiful image in Revelation 21, or Revelation 20, when all things are being thrown in the lake, all the enemies of God are being thrown into the lake of fire. And the beast is thrown in the lake of fire. And Satan is thrown in the lake of fire. But then last of all, before we get the vision of the glorious kingdom of God in the new heavens and the new earth, before that, one last thing to be thrown in the lake of fire. And it says, and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Death, thou shalt die. Death itself will be defeated, thrown into the lake of fire, or as he says here, death is swallowed up in victory. The victory overcomes death. So that death, and, and I know John Piper has talked about this before, like what does it mean to be swallowed up in victory? Or he looks at that passage in Romans 8 and he says, what's it mean to be more than conquerors? Like there's conquerors, but then what's it mean to be more than a conqueror? And he links these two texts. And he says, not only is death like defeated, but death is defeated and then serves us. Right? It's that death actually becomes, in the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, death actually becomes a gateway for you into glory. 
rather than being a barrier to our glory, rather than being a barrier to our happiness, death actually by the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ is brought into submission so that now all death can do is serve us. Death brings us into glory. That's why Paul can say to the Philippians, right, for me to live is Christ and to die is not endurable, tolerable. Now that Christ is risen, oh, death is tolerable. No, he actually says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Gain. Like death is swallowed up in victory so much so that it no longer is not, it's, it's no longer just a barrier to me. It actually becomes a portal for me, a gateway unto glory. So this beautiful fact, death will die. Death will be swallowed up in victory. And then, of course, the beautiful uh, uh, John Dunian kind of charge, you know, death, thou shalt die. It's like he's talking right to death and, and mocking it. You will die. And here we have Paul doing the same thing in quoting in verse 55. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Right? He's mocking death in the acknowledgement that it has no teeth. I, uh, I changed the metaphor because I couldn't think of a good way. A good way to put it, um, you know, I guess I could have put the de-stinging of death, but I put death defanged. That is that the, the, the death, death is like lost its bite. It's lost its teeth. It's lost its stinger. It, it actually can't harm you anymore. And this is why, why I chose Psalm 91 as the Old Testament text today, because in Psalm 91, you say, well, wait, wait a second, Bill. Death can harm us. We grieve today, the, the loss of Tom, loss of Susan's dad. We all have, we all have people that we, I was just down, I told, I told the, I had to give the eulogy at my grandmother's thing, but it's like, even my grandmother lived 107 and a half. It's like, but she's gone. It's like, you think, wow, 107, that's a long life, is it? It's over. You know, it's like, I know, I know if you, if you started at, her birth now, you'd say, wow, 107 is a long time. But on the back end, it's not so long. It's, it's gone. It's a vapor. You, know? you say, well, what does it mean death has no victory? It seems to have victory. What, what, what do you mean death has lost its fangs, its teeth, its, its grip? You know, we, we suffer from it. And that's Psalm 91. That's why I say when you read Psalm 91, it seems like it, it, you can imagine I try to hear it like a non-believer. I would read that and say, your, your Bible's a joke. Like, it's religious talk. You know, no plague will enter your tent. Right? I mean, well, that's a, that's a, of course it does. People die all the time. Like, it just seems like religious platitudes. Like, we say these things because that's what makes you feel better. Oh, no plague will come near our tent. Yeah, but the guy who wrote that died. So just on the surface, it doesn't seem true. But aha, you have to look deeper. You have to understand. This is where Jesus Christ makes it true. Because in fact, the plague may come near you. But in the end, no evil will befall you. When I read Psalm 91, we read this as our, uh, Psalm 91 was the text I read every uh, week with my seniors. We'd read it responsibly from the hymns. That's how we begin class. We'd read Psalm 91 because I was going through the book of Revelation with them. And so we're, I'm teaching through that, but our opening text that we kind of 
have lingering in the back of our mind was Psalm 91. Because in Psalm 91, I'd remind the students, hey, they may kill you, but they can't hurt you. You know, the beast may kill you, but it can't hurt you. That's the point of Psalm 91. That's the point of the book of Revelation. And that's the thing that Paul is celebrating here. Sure, you may suffer terrible things. Yes, we have to suffer loss. Yes, we may have to suffer cancer. Yes, we may have to suffer funerals. We may have to suffer death. You will suffer death. But it can't hurt you. That is the truth. That is the joy of being in Christ. And so we have in this text a fact. The fact is death will be swallowed up. Now, the one caveat I would add to this is that Paul says, when the corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass this statement. See, again, this is where the faith that is required of us as Christians comes into play because that fact is something that has been established in Jesus Christ but will finally be able to be sung. John Donne's poem will finally be able to be read. This text will finally be able to be chanted, death, where's your victory? Oh, grave, where's your sting? On that day when Christ comes again. And in the meantime, we lay hold of this by faith because we have to go to funerals. We have to bury people we love. We have to deal with bad diagnoses and do it with the confidence and faith of this, knowing that it is yet to come. The day is coming when the cemeteries will be emptied and we will celebrate around the empty tombs, chanting this very thing, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? So it's a mystery, but it's a fact. And then we get the theological explanation down in verse 56. You know why this is true? Because the sting, O death, where is your sting? He's mocking, he's mocking death as having lost its sting. I've, I've used the uh, example before of my, of my son, Andy. I remember we were taking batting practice together down on a little, on one of the school's baseball fields. And, uh, and I remember I reached into the bucket to pull out a baseball and there was a bee in there and it stung me. And it just, it was an inconvenient, <laughs> inconvenient grab of the ball. And it stung me, but what was funny is as it stung me, it pulled away like honeybees do and its stinger stayed in my, it was right in the meat of my thumb actually. And the stinger stayed right there with that little pocket of, you know, poison that it's got and it's pumping away, you know, putting it in my hand. And the bee literally had a hole in its rear end, you know, that from the stinger, the stinger was pulled out and it was a, it was a sting, stingerless bee. Uh, it was a drone, you know, now. And, and Andy was a little guy and he jumped back and it was, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like the most perfect sermon illustration you could ever have. Because it was like, you got this bee that might naturally cause you to recoil, which now had literally lost its stinger. And that's all it's got is that stinger. There's nothing else that honeybee is going to do to you. And so now it's basically, it's just a creepy girl. You know, it's just a little, it's like a caterpillar, you know, and there's nothing it can do to you because I've got the stinger in my hand. And that is, that is exactly the gospel of Jesus Christ having taken the stinger. And now that the, the bee is just a cuddly little, you know, cute looking bug. That's all it is. And Paul gives the logic of that. Here's why. The sting of death that we now mock is gone. The sting of death is sin. If you take sin out of the equation, death is just sleep. You know, it's, it's, again, what Adam got in the garden when God put him to sleep and then, again, if you will, put Adam to sleep and then brought life out of him 
And so when he woke up, he was no longer just Adam. He was Adam and Eve. He was at the two, one flesh now. It was like, it was like this, this diversity, this life-givingness that came out of him. And that's what, that's what death is if you take the sting of sin out. It, it's, it's just sleep. It's, 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 it's the process of new life. The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin, what makes sin stick into the bee, gives it its sticking power. It's hard to remove that sting of sin because what, what gives it its power is the law. And my goodness gracious, that just when do I stop sinning? So you've got the law here just fueling it's just so many, the more, the more the law piles up, the more I sin, the more offenses I have. How do you ever solve that? How do you ever get the sting out of death? And the answer is only one way, Jesus Christ. And that's why he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is giving you the theological explanation about why death has lost its sting. Death has lost its sting because Jesus has come and satisfied the law and borne your sin. Like something had to happen. It's not just, a, oh, we hate death. It wouldn't it be nice if it just went away and poof, it just goes away. No, no, no. He had to be stung. That's what's happening at Calvary. Uh, at, at Calvary. He's being stung, pressed under the wine press of the judgment of God. He's bearing the stinger, not only of your sin, but of the sin of the world. And the venom of that is pumping into him so that he who knew no sin now becomes sin. So that he might extract that sting. He might break the power by satisfying the law and bearing your sin, he can remove the sting. And as the words of one of my favorite hymns, you know, let us love and sing and wonder says, you know, let us wonder, grace and justice, join and point to mercy store. When through faith in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. Like the law is satisfied, justice smiles and asks no more. The strength of sin is gone because the law is satisfied and therefore sin is removed, which is the sting, and therefore death has no victory. Death can't harm you. This is the theological explanation, which then finally brings us to the charge, the therefore, which ends this magnificent, monumental chapter. Therefore, what does all of this mean, Corinthians? What does all of this mean, Americans? What does all of this mean, members of Affirmation Church, friends of Affirmation Church? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Just what we heard in our word of exhortation today from 2 Timothy 2. Be strong in the grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ and suffer hardship as a good soldier. What does the gospel mean for you? It means get to work. It means pick your head up. Sure, we're, we're weeping. We, we weep. I mean, Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. Paul says we grieve over this cursed world in which we have to live. But you know what? We wipe our snot away and we, we bring the tears out of our eyes and they're real and they're not wrong to have. And then we get to work. We are steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 
because we remember, as Paul said to, the, to Timothy in 2 Timothy, we remember Jesus Christ, the seed of David, raised from the dead. We don't live like non-believers. We don't live as if there's no hope. We don't live as if we're not gonna see Tom again and Susan's dad again and the ones we love in Christ again. We know we will. It might be a mystery how it happens, but it's a certainty that it will happen. And knowing why it happened in the theological explanation that's given, therefore, beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, right? Unshakable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Like a good soldier, beware of being entangled in all the things the world offers you, all the other pleasing things. Be steadfast and immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work is not in vain. And then the last phrase is so important, in the Lord. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Outside of the Lord, it is all smoke. Outside of the Lord, it is all vapor. It will vanish away all the great and amazing things that are done in the world vanish. Think of all the great works of history. You want another great poem? Read Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. Ozymandias, the, 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 the remnants of a great king who, who built a statue for himself. And the, the, the speaker in the poem is a, is a man who's traveling uh, on a trip and he comes upon this, this, what looked like a statue and it's in pieces and it's just laying overblown by dirt and dust. And he, he, he can barely read the little inscription on this, this statue that's now laying in rubble and pieces here, pieces there. And he reads the inscription and says, Hey, Angor, I am Ozymandias the Great. You know, look at, look at me and be, be scared. Tremble over me. You know, the guy, his statue's in crumbling wreckage and ruins. Who's Oz? You even scratch your head. Who the heck's Ozymandias? And you, the stranger walks on. Right? All the great things of history. They're vapor. They're vapor. But for us in Christ, your labor is not in vain. In the Lord. So I conclude this beautiful chapter with a charge to you. Make sure that your hope is in the Lord. That your labor is in the Lord. That you're seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Trusting all these other things will be added to you. But don't pursue all the other things. Pursue the kingdom of God and let these things be added to you. Trusting then that your labor is not in vain. And be steadfast then and immovable, knowing the resurrection certainty and hope that is yours in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we have already confessed, we are so easily distracted. Lord God, we ask for your mercy. Make us those who are steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor in him is not in vain. Father, restore us, strengthen us, and give us great comfort and hope. Again, we pray for Phyllis and Susan, particularly this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.